at times, as Christians, uh, we also know and experience sometimes great discouragement. Now, I'm not going to ask for hands because I think everybody's hand would raise if you uh, have dealt with discouragement or maybe in the midst of discouragement now or had something discouraging this week. Discouragement seems to be a close uh, companion uh, in life, but it is even also true for Christians. There are maybe the false mindset that when uh, we became part of God's family and, and received Christ as our Lord and Savior, that that was going to forever make us immune from discouragement, anything that would come upon us that would perhaps uh, uh, depress us or weight us down or frustrate us. But that's not the case. At least can I get a nod in that? That's not, yes, good, all right. Make sure I'm talking to the right group here. One of the things that's encouraging, I guess it's, well, encouraging, but at least not making you feel like you're the only one, is when you read and study your Bibles or just read through or know the stories of the Bible and you realize, I can't think of anybody in Scripture that did not face discouragement in some form or fashion in their life. Can't think of anybody. Uh, Elijah, remember Elijah? When you read in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18 and there's that great showdown on Mount Carmel with those false prophets and God answers by fire and demonstrates his power. The very next chapter, we have Elijah just discouraged because Jezebel, the wife of that wicked king Ahab, has got a contract out on him, and he just prays, God, just take my life. He is just about as down as down can be. Sometimes coming off of, that's why you can't always live for spiritual highs all the time. Have you found that to be the case? There are Christians that are always running trying to find the next spiritual high instead of just realizing that the Christian life will have mountains and it'll have what? It'll have valleys. But you know what? It's all moving forward, right? It's part of our walk as believers. Uh, Moses, remember Moses? I mean, he he could get so down and discouraged over not only the sins of the people. Here he's trying to lead them into the promised land. And here these ungrateful people, not only are they just seem like they're looking for any way to rebel and reject uh, the law of God. But then they start plotting to say, hey, we don't even like you, Moses. We, we want to get rid of you. And he was weighted down with discouragement. Uh, Job, just saying the name Job, right? We know Job. We don't even have to comment on that. Jonah, he was angry. He was down and dirty angry because guess what? He didn't like God's agenda and God's plan. He didn't want to do that. And He became angry and and discouraged, and and some of that, again, was self-inflicted. David, the giant killer. David was uh, certainly a complex man, but David also knew great joys. He knew uh, great sins, but he also understood that life is part of walking through the valleys. Uh, He wrote, uh, of course, many and most of the Psalms, but in Psalm 42, 11, he writes this, it's always been a comfort. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He's talking to himself. You ever talk to yourself? It's just when you go, huh, you're in trouble, right? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? That's, that's a put, he's talking to himself. Put your hope in God, 
for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David understood uh, enemies and persecutions and people that he thought were his friends that turned against him. And when you look at the life of, of the one who was the fulfillment of the pattern that David set, but he was not the the King David of prophecy, and that was Jesus. Jesus himself is a man who knew discouragement. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, speaking prophetically of the Messiah, that Jesus is identified as the suffering servant. He's called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Bible says that as he was praying and uh, Luke and Mark and different of the Gospels, that uh, I think it was in uh, Mark's uh, version, but Luke 22, when he was praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the anguish at what was before him of being crucified, there, there was such anguish, the Bible says that he sweated drops of blood. And yet the Bible also says that because of who Jesus is, he is our high priest who understands our weaknesses and understand, I would even say, our discouragement. Here is one thing that is true. If you walk this earth, and I'll just say believer or unbeliever, if you walk this earth, saint or sinner, you're going to face discouragement. But the difference for the Christian, the difference for the believer, is not that we are immune from discouragements. In some ways, when you became a Christian, you faced can we be honest? More discouragements. Because not everybody is quite on board with your decisions as a Christian. And sometimes the way that you had to make choices in your life, sometimes it brought on additional discouragements. But what is the difference? The difference is, is not that we are immune from discouragements, but that there is a difference in how we navigate navigate these discouragements. I think the writer of Hebrews, and this is all kind of introductory to looking at where we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter uh, 23, but I think this is uh, something the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he writes in Hebrews chapter 12 at the first three verses, encouraging his audience. They are facing discouragement. There's a Jewish audience, that's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews, but he's writing a word of encouragement for them to persevere and to be encouraged in spite of the things that are coming against them that are causing some of them to question their faith. He writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I kind of just, just stop there. It's not the message. But I always love that picture. It always kind of is a picture of us down in the arena and we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And if you remember, before Acts 12, here's a real deep Bible study lesson. Before Acts 12, there is what? Acts chapter 11. Oh, y'all are really scholars. Good. But what do we know about Acts chapter 11? That is that wonderful chapter of the men and women of faith, right? And, and so I kind of always thought, and, and, and others, that this cloud of witnesses are all those witnesses that have preceded us who have endured great persecutions, great discouragements, but persevered in faith. 
and they, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, almost like up in the, the cheering section. Can you imagine when you're, if you've played football or baseball or ran track or whatever, is there's something about having your fr- family or dad or a cousin or uncle or somebody, you know, in that cheering section cheering you on, right? To, to, that you're going to keep going, you're going to make it, they're for you. Well, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses uh, speaking of us, cheering us on in the midst of this walk, this struggle. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If I thought of Paul, I think he might have been an ESPN watcher because he always has so many sports illustrations. But he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on on what? Not the person in front of us. Because, you know, if we watch the person in front of us, we get discouraged. And if we all of a sudden look behind us, we get prideful because we think, well, I'm running better than that guy. Right? But we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, amen, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy before him. Now, it didn't seem like joy when he was in the garden sweating drops of blood, but the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him. In other words, get your eyes off the circumstances and fix your eyes on Christ who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's easy to grow weary and lose heart. Oh, you may never say, I'm ready just to abandon Christianity and I'm going to convert to some entirely different... No, it isn't quite, but you 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 just are weary... At the barrage of discouragement that just seems to constantly, it seems, more so in seasons, but there are times that those seasons just seem to never end. God, I need a vacation from this season for a little while, and there is a growing weariness. Well, in Acts chapter 23, to kind of put it in context, we're getting closer to the landing pad, is that Paul, if you remember back uh, in chapter uh, uh, 20, 21, he's making his, 22, he's making his way, he's heading to Jerusalem. And he has been told by the Holy Spirit what awaits for him in Jerusalem. There's going to be uh, trouble, there's going to be persecution. He doesn't quite know everything exactly that's going to take place. Some other people confirm this. Remember uh, some of those, uh, the, the words they spoke by the Holy Spirit, they confirmed of what awaits for him. They were cautioning him not to go, but Paul understood that this was part of the mission uh, for him to go to Jerusalem. Ultimately, Paul's wanting to go to Rome and taking the gospel to, the, to Rome and, and furthering the advancement of Christianity being used by Christ. But here he is now in Acts 22 and now we're in 23. He is in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit has shown him uh, what is going to take place. And in um, Acts chapter 22, as Paul was in the temple praying, you wouldn't think you could get into much trouble praying, right? Well, Paul did, because there were folks, and uh, if you track it back, you'll see that there were some folks that 
followed him from Ephesus. Remember, we spent five weeks in, in studying Acts chapter 19 about Ephesus and the spiritual awakening was there. And you remember that it was a big disturbance of what took place in Ephesus because uh, these, these people that were involved in all this occultism, they became they converted by Christ and they gave up their occultism and all the businesses that were interconnected to the, to the idol worship and the occultism that was uh, going on there in Ephesus. It caused a big disturbance because they were losing their money by all these converts. Well, there's a group that followed him because they just were wanting to destroy him. And as we'll see here or make reference to it, they had made a commitment that they didn't just want to oppose Paul, but they wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to kill the man. And so it led to his arrest and beating, and he was given a hearing uh, before the Sanhedrin, if you remember what the Sanhedrin Council, they function much like this, uh, a Supreme Court in Israel, mostly composed of two religious groups of the Jews, Sadducees and Pharisees, mostly Sadducees. And so that's kind of where we're at. And I'm going to begin reading some select verses. We're not going to read uh, the entirety of some uh, verses here. So I'm going to have them kind of, uh, we're going to, they're on the screen and we'll uh, bounce around a little bit to give you the idea of what's going on. But it really begins the, where we want to go this morning. It, it begins in chapter 22, verse 30. And so here we go, and you can again follow on the screen and look with me at verse uh, 30. I'm going to read the first three verses here into chapter 23. But on the next day, being uh, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, there was this uh, man, a tribune, he's kind of a Roman uh, leader there, and uh, he, he wasn't sure exactly what was going on. He found out Paul was a Roman citizen, and he wasn't sure whether he should arrest him or what he should do, and they beat him, and Paul let him know he was a Roman citizen, and they kind of freaked out because that was a violation of being a Roman citizen. They didn't have the right to do that. So he's trying to figure out what's going on here with this mob against this man that he doesn't even really know. In fact, if you look back up in chapter 22, uh, this Roman tribune thinks that he's some uh, Egyptian who led some rebellion. He doesn't have a clue who this guy, is, this guy is. And so verse 30, but on the next day, after Paul was uh, incarcerated, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, this uh, tribune he's referred to, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them trying to figure out what's going on here. And looking intently, chapter 23, verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I don't think things are going to go well, all right? Right? Uh, look down at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, the strictest of, of the Jewish groups. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. little kind of uh, monkey wrench he did because there was great dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, not a resurrection of Jesus, but a resurrection of the body. The Sadducees didn't, and that's why they were sad, you see. But anyway, verse 7. And verse 7, and when 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and all chaos broke out because he mentioned about the resurrection of the dead, and maybe that was just kind of a little bit of a strategy there. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, boy, you talk about some business meetings and doctrinal meetings here, and it became violent, the tribune, who's kind of this uh, Roman official uh, overseeing this, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks where the other soldiers were staying. So here we have Paul in Jerusalem. There's a mob. They're wanting to kill him. In fact, if you look down at verse 12, I don't think I have it on the screen, but at verse 12, I do. Uh, When it was day, we're going to skip verse 11, come back to it. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they had done what? So this is not just your ordinary kind of group meeting. These people have a fanatical, I would say, demonic hatred not just over Paul, but in what and who Paul is and the truth that Paul represented and the Christ in him and the gospel. But I want to go back to verse 11, and that's where we're going to stay on this morning and talk about verse 11 a bit. Now, Paul is in the barracks. He's being held there. He knows that his life is, is severely threatened. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And here he is staying in the barracks, and verse 11 The following night, the Lord stood by him and said to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This morning, I want us to just look at verse 11, when the Lord said to take courage, the fact that God was with Paul. He was with Paul in that holding cell, and God was speaking a word of encouragement to his soul. This morning, I'll ask you, and certainly it applies to me, do you need courage? You see, courage is when you are discouraged. When you are without courage, we need encouragement. We need courage, and the Word of God is here to encourage us today, and I trust that the Word of God will feed us this morning. And as we begin this morning, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do just that. Would you join with me as we pray, as we begin? Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Let the Word of God be the voice of God speaking into the lives of your people here today. I pray, God, that our those that are walking with you, that probably everyone here in some form or fashion, Lord, are facing some discouragement, something they're, they're feeling pressure with, or there may be those who feel like they're just ready to throw in the towel. God, may the words of life through your scripture, through the Spirit of God, applying it to our hearts, Lord, speak life to all of us here today and bring encouragement into our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, chapter 23, verse 11, I want us to see how the Lord encourages His people, and I've titled it, Courage for the Discouraged. Courage for the Discouraged, and how the Lord encourages His people by His presence in the midst 
of our difficult circumstances. I always kind of prefer that God would just remove me, but the, remember Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley. I don't like the walking through the valley. I'd rather pray as I go around the valley of the shadow of death. And look, no, as I walk through the valley, that's the way it is, is God is in the midst of our circumstances. This is, uh, if you, if you want to uh, just a side note here. This is uh, in in sequential order. Uh, this is the fifth time that the Lord appeared to the Apostle Paul. You remember when he was uh, converted on the road to Damascus, uh, Jesus appeared to him. Another time he refers to in Galatians 1 uh, when he was in the desert. Uh, there was another time when he was in the temple and he was praying and God spoke to him in Acts 22 to go to the Gentiles. And that's where, again, God confirmed that he was going to go to Rome, even though there was going to be some unpleasant things in Jerusalem. Uh, he was also, uh, the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him in chapter 18 when he was in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a very wicked city, and there was a lot of trouble there and persecution. And God reminded him, remember when he said, Paul, uh, be of courage that there are many, I have many in this city. Now, he didn't know who they were, but God already said, look, there are many here that are with you and are going to believe in the message. And so here in chapter 23, verse 11, God came to him in his cell, in his prison cell, and spoke these words of courage to Paul in this very dark, difficult circumstance. And I want us this morning to look at four lessons in verse 23 in regards to having courage for the discouraged. Number one, the Lord knows all of our difficult circumstances. Just think about it, is the Lord knows all of what we're going through. Maybe your friends, family, spouse, they may not quite know the depth of what is discouraging you, what, you're, what you feel pressed uh, against, uh, what keeps you awake at night. They may not know the depth of all those things, but the Bible reminds us time and time again that God knows all of our difficult circumstances. He didn't need to dispatch some angels to find out where Paul was. God knew exactly where Paul was. He knew exactly where he was, and he knew exactly what he needed. Aren't you glad God knows where we're at? And he not only knows where we're at, but he knows exactly what we need. And may I add, when we need it. May not be when we think we need it, but he knows all about us, and he knows all about the difficulty we're facing. God didn't, uh, uh, interesting, when Paul didn't, in that, in that little uh, verse 11 there, there could have been more, but that's all that the Spirit of God recorded, uh, Luke uh, recorded there, or what Paul conveyed to him. He didn't tell him all that was ahead. He didn't tell him all that was going to take place. Doesn't that frustrate you that God oftentimes operates in our life on a need-to-know basis? Doesn't that frustrate you? I always think Job and anybody else but imagine what a difference it would have made in Job's life if God would have said, look, you're going to go through some really bad stuff. I mean, it's going to be some real tragedy. But on the back end, here's all that's going to take place. I mean, if God would give us a little heads up and saying, I know this valley, but here's, you know when you get a preview of a coming attraction? Here's a preview of what's ahead. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. Oftentimes, it's God bringing his presence in the midst 
of our pain, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our disappointment. And when God reminds us that the Lord knows all about our difficult circumstances, it reminds us that God is not only, uh, He's omniscient. That means He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's always present. Uh, He's always with us, and He knows all about, and He knows all the intricacies of what goes before and what goes behind. He knows all the alternatives, and He also knows that the enemy is working His plan, even though it is something God uh, uh, has no uh, advancement without uh, God's sovereignty. He knows the the enemy is also working out His devices, just like He was with Paul, but I love Isaiah fifty four seventeen that reminds us, and let it be a reminder today, if you're whatever you're facing, whatever situation, that no weapon that is formed against you shall succeed or prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, not you, and their vindication is from me. It's so much better when the Lord says, I will make a table, uh, I, will, I will make a spread out table before your enemies. It's better when God does it, isn't it? You ever tried to act on that vindication and you kind of muddled it up and made things worse? Just let God handle it. No weapon, regardless of whatever the situation is, no weapon that the enemy, that Satan may have. You remember, you know, the Bible does speak about Satan does have some devices and weapons. He told Peter... He says that Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He knew the plans of what the enemy had against Peter's life. But do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? But I have what? Prayed for you. In other words, where I've stepped in, he can't do anything. And you need to be reminded that today. As dark as the moment is, as tough as the moment is, as challenging upon your emotions it is, the Bible says that no weapon formed against you won't prosper. God will not allow anything to come into our lives that does not first pass through His sovereign love and direction for our life. This morning, you may be in your own prison of difficulty, a difficult situation, a dark cell of physical issues, physical illness, financial issues, marital issues, a heartache of a loved one who's turned away from Christ and is no longer walking with them, a prodigal in your life, something that has just brought a weight of discouragement upon you. Maybe you're at the place where you feel like nobody knows the depth of what I'm going through. And sometimes you think nobody really cares. Well, here's the word of the Lord. Not only does God know what we're going through, but no one cares like God cares for our lives. So the first thing we need to be reminded is the Lord knows all about our difficult circumstances. But notice, secondly, a principle is that the Lord is with us in all of our difficult circumstances. The Lord is with us in all of our difficult circumstances. Look again at verse 11. The Lord stood by Paul, or the Lord stood near Paul. The Lord stood near Paul. I love that. It wasn't just some cloud in the sky, but where was God? He was inside right there with Paul in that prison cell. You ever sense God walking with you 
in the midst of that prison cell where you just feel like nobody knows, nobody cares. I'm not even sure if I'm going to make it. And you, you just, and again, it, you don't want to get mystical or weird, but I can't explain it other way. You just know that you know that you know that God is with you. None of us will probably see a physical manifestation of Jesus. I know we have a lot of stories and people that say a lot of things, but I, I just really don't buy into it. You may sense a, 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 his presence in prayer and a time in the Word, and that's certainly legitimate, but I believe that the Lord physically revealed himself. Again, this is a pattern six different times with the Apostle Paul. That is not a normative experience for the believer, but that is not to say or in any way diminish that the Lord Jesus Christ is not with us in spirit, uh, that his presence is not made real to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that even if we do not see him, we do not see him with human sight. The Bible gives us the promise in Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Jesus said, I am with you always. Peter, in 1 Peter, writes to his readers in 1 Peter, uh, I believe it's in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Though you have not seen him, you believe. You remember what Jesus told Thomas? You're blessed because you see me, but what does he say? Blessed are those who believe and have never seen or haven't touched or handled. I think the writer, again, of Hebrews is helpful on this when he writes in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, when he tells us and reminds us to keep, uh, yes, verse 6, when quoting in verse 5, I don't have it on the screen, right before it in verse 5, how the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, verse 6, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my what? The Lord is my helper. And what is the result of that? I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals or humans do to me that's a pretty good word when you got god on your side when you have god you know sometimes we'll say i got your back on this and you turn around they they're not there but humanly you know i got your back listen god's got your back he's got your sides he's got your front god is all around you why fear what people can do for me or against me I couldn't help but think of the Old Testament story that perhaps was one of the first stories we learned. And if you went to Sunday school as a child, you learned about those three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel. And you remember how the king Nebuchadnezzar uh, told them that when he brought out this grandiose idol uh, of self-worship and they were to bow down, and when they refused to do that, they put him into that fiery furnace. And you remember if you went to Sunday school or remember as a kid, you remember flannel graphs? But here's what we need to remember in that whole story is when they looked in and saw these guys inside the furnace, what did they notice? They counted one, two, three, but aren't you glad the fourth man is in our life? Who is that fourth man but the Son of God himself? Jesus is in our furnace. Well, Pastor, you don't know how hot that furnace is. I may not. But Jesus does, and Jesus can handle the heat. Even though we may not feel or see his physical presence, and I don't want this to be in any way diminished, it doesn't mean that his presence is not just as real. 
And, you know, there's special ways that I believe God speaks to us. Primarily is through the scriptures. That's anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's words of life. He speaks through us through the word of God, speaks an encouragement to us through scripture. That's the reason encouraging to be people of the word of God. But also he uses people, doesn't he? This morning, as I was in my uh, study at home at 6 o'clock, I got a text from a friend of mine who's a pastor in Texas, just sent me a text, and it was just a word of encouragement when he encouraged me. And uh, I texted him back. I said, thank you for that word of encouragement. I had a good friend, Don Arnold, Don Arnold that uh, went to be with the Lord, and he was an older gentleman. The church I uh, pastored previously, he was our pastor of visitation. He and his wife visited here a few times uh, before he passed away, and we became good friends. And every, up until maybe a few weeks when he got sick, every Sunday morning without fail, every Sunday morning without fail, I got a text from him around seven thirty, eight o'clock, and just saying, I want to encourage you, Pastor. Let me tell you, I can go a long way on a little encouragement, can't you? And to me, there were, there were times in which that was God making his presence known into my life, bringing me encouragement. You know, when I was writing this and looking at this, I thought of another situation. I have here my dad's uh, Bible, and uh, it's a, obviously a real treasure. And it isn't just a Bible uh, with, you know, just, just some, there was some uh, bookend or some paperweight he had, but it was actually a Bible that he used. And in fact, it, uh, in his handwriting here in the uh, opening page, it has that he was saved March 16th, 1959. And then he has a log that he's written all through here, and it goes in the back where he writes every year that he read through the Bible. And let me just say this free. Can I give you something free? You like free stuff? Jared, do you like free stuff? Good. You're going to get something free now. Get a Bible. Let me tell you, what are you going to hand your legacy family of God's work in your life? What are you going to hand them down, an app? You're going to hand them down a, a, a cell phone? This, this, is, this is markings and writings in here that's like a little journal of his spiritual walk that's been an encouragement to me. Get a real Bible. Get one that Jesus carried. Now, that's a joke, okay? I, you, you're, you're, you're scaring me. You're not breathing, so I need to... But, but this is why I brought this this morning. Is that one, one, uh, uh, Several years back, through a really, really difficult, dark time in my life, when I just felt so down and discouraged. And one day, I remember I was sitting at my desk, the place I lived, before Sherry and I got married, and I was just, uh, I just was about as down as you could be, discouraged. And I was reading, just took his Bible, and I was reading through it. And I was reading Psalm 39, and he had it underlined, and he has it marked here that he uh, read this on November 11, 1968. And he has it underlined, and it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Now that's a great word, but you know what really encouraged me? Is his little handwriting that just says, keep going. Now if you don't think that was a word to me at that moment, well, I'll hold that, you figure out the theology, but that was a word to my life 
when just that word of God, but his little note that just said kept going. That was as if, and he's been in heaven now for 19 years, that was a word to me at that moment, not just his word, but, but the, the Lord speaking a word of encouragement to me. So don't underestimate the different ways of what God can do in our life. Towards the latter part of Paul's ministry in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he writes, How no one at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone did what? Deserted me. They abandoned me. But then he says in the next verse, But the Lord, what? Stood with me. Listen, spouse, neighbor, friend, son, daughter, aunt, uncle, Name them all, may desert you and leave you, but my friend, God will never, 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 never forsake you and never leave you. I'm thankful that the Lord is with us in all of our circumstances. Notice thirdly, the Lord understands how we feel in all of our difficult circumstances. Why does the Lord say, here's a deep thought, why does the Lord say, take courage? Because Paul doesn't have courage. The great apostle Paul, facing who knows what, probably the threats of death against these people that are just like the, the, the lions that Daniel faced, God is going to shut their mouth and protect Paul, but he doesn't quite know it. Paul needs courage. He is discouraged. He's maybe dealing with disappointment at the way things have gone since he arrived in Jerusalem. Maybe he hoped that what God had done in his life, that as he came into Jerusalem, that people would see the work of God. They would see the fruit of God and see how God worked in this Pharisee of Pharisee and seek Christ. And he was discouraged the way things were going in Jerusalem. Maybe he felt disappointment at the The church there in Jerusalem didn't quite appreciate his ministry. Remember early on when he was converted? What did they do? They packed him up and sent him away. And from the time, I said last week, from the time that when Barnabas was commissioned by the apostles in Jerusalem to go and check out the church at Antioch where all these Gentiles were getting saved, he remembered remembered this guy named Paul up in Tarsus. And there was 10 years from the time that Saul, Paul, was converted from the time that God plucked him and used Barnabas, who's, by the way, name means what? Son of encouragement. God knows the timing to encourage us. And so maybe he was discouraged. He's alone in the cell, uncertain about his future, questioning, is he going to fulfill the purposes of Christ? Is he going to fulfill the commission that God had given him, uh, given him discouraged uh, uh, and, I, you know, as Paul knew the Word of God, I think he was probably maybe high, you know, just speculating a little bit. I don't think it's too off. Meditating, thinking about the Psalms, which he, as a Pharisee, probably had the entire commitment to memory. Maybe he came across Psalm 22, verse 2. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. You do not answer. You ever feel like that? You feel like, God, I've been praying, I've been talking, not getting anything, not hearing anything. He says, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, 
I find no rest. But there's, while that's there, there's also Psalm 34, 17 that says, The righteous cry for help, and the Lord, what? The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Some of you need to write that verse down. Some of you need to bring a pen and paper because these, this is medicine to your soul that the Word of God is. And that's a, that's a Word of God that the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord didn't condemn Paul for feeling perhaps discouraged when he said, Take courage, Paul. I've spoken to you. I've given you the Word. I've taught you. I've met with you now six times. Take courage. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, Paul, you lack faith. You need to confess your way out of this situation. Hello? Listen, there's times in which you can confess all day long, and you're going to still be in that same situation. He didn't rebuke him for that. He didn't give him some mumbo-jumbo false doctrine to, to say, Paul, the reason all this has happened, it's brought on yourself because you don't believe. God understands exactly how we feel. But you know what God is doing in our lives? And I think he's reminding Paul here is he's showing us, he's teaching us not to deny that we're feeling what we're feeling through these difficulties, but he's teaching us how do we handle these feelings, how do we handle the emotions in a godly manner that demonstrates a continued trust and reliance on him, even in the darkest of moments. It's not a denial of how we feel. It's not somehow saying everything is great and wonderful when it isn't. But it's remembering that God is with me and God knows exactly what I'm going through. Remember Hebrews 2.18 should be on the screen. For he himself, Christ, and this right above it was talking about how he is our high priest. For he himself, Christ, was tempted in that which he suffered. And because of that, he is what? Able. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now just put... Uh, trial or testing or discouragement in there besides tempted. Tempted to bail out. Tempted to, to throw it all in. God, why is Christ able to be such a wonderful high priest? Is because he himself walked the same earth that we walked, but in all these things did not sin. Christ is teaching us as believers how do we navigate our way through the valleys? How do we navigate our way through these discouragements and yet still glorify God in the midst of it? How do we grow in trusting God in the midst of all these discouragements? How do we navigate? How do we handle these things in a godly way? I think this is what was behind what James wrote. And I feel like I've quoted this many times in the past few months, but in James chapter 1, James' counsel is valuable here, again, with this in mind. When he says, count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, do what? Ask God, who gives generously to all without a reproach. Discourage, ask God, who will give us wisdom in navigating, and it will be given to him. But let him 
Ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Feelings and emotions are real. God knows they're real. He understands what we're feeling, not only what we're, we, we're going through, but he understands our emotions and our feelings in the process of it. But as a disciple, as a growing believer, we are not ruled by our feelings. Paul is a chaplain. He goes into prison, but they let him out. Yes. <laughs> How many people are in prison because their feelings ruled their emotions? We are not ruled by our feelings. In fact, the Bible says in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is not tongues. It's not the sign gifts. What is the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit? Galatians 5 says that it's love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Not mind over matter, but the fruit of the Spirit is allowing the Holy Spirit to govern and dictate my emotions. How do we get the fruit of the Spirit? Is we cultivate more of God's Spirit, more of God's Word, God's presence, to where all of a sudden, and I, I have found this to be true in my life, and I hope it's true in your life, certainly not perfect by any means. Just ask my wife, and she'll spend a few hours with you, giving you a nice list of imperfections. But I have found there are things that today that I experience and that would discourage me, and I am sometimes shocked of how, now it doesn't mean I don't go through that nanosecond of panic, but how I've learned, the point is I've learned to allow the Holy Spirit to dictate my feelings, my emotions, and to say, God, even in this, this is no surprise, I trust you. I'm relying on you to give me the wisdom. That's the asking of God. When you don't know what to do, I'm asking you to help me navigate through this situation. God will do that. The Lord knows all of our difficult circumstances. The Lord is with us. The Lord understands how we feel. And the last principle is the Lord gives the command of His Word. The Lord gives the command of His Word to encourage us in our difficulties. In verse 11, what did the Lord do? He gave a command. He told Paul, Take courage. That wasn't a suggestion. That was a command. And it's interesting when you see how that verb is, is used in different places. Uh, Jesus used it in Matthew 9, 2, with a paralyzed man on his bed and said to the man, from the, and I'm reading in, in the New American Standard, ESV says, take heart. The New American Standard says, take courage. He tells this paralyzed man who was desperate, he said, take courage. In Matthew 9.22, there was a woman who had issue of blood that touched the fringe of Jesus' coat. And Jesus told her, a woman who was in a desperate situation, daughter, take courage. 
Matthew 14, 27, the disciples thought they saw a ghost out on the water at night when it was really Jesus walking on the water. And what did he tell them? He said, take courage. Don't be afraid. It's me. In John 16, the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you when he's speaking to his disciples. On the night he was going to be betrayed is the night before he was going to be hauled off into a phony court and taken and crucified on the cross. He said to his disciples, these things I have spoken unto you that in me you may have peace. For in the world you will have what? Tribulation, discouragement, trials. But what does he say? A command of his word, but take courage. In each of those cases, the command was given to someone in a hopeless, desperate state. What does the Word of God give Paul? He's in a hopeless, desperate state in that cell, and God gives the command of His Word to take courage. Now, a commandment you have by its implication, you can either... You have two options. You can obey the command, or you can do what? You can disobey the command. If you disobey, it's what we oftentimes do when we know God's direction and His Word and we won't trust Him, we're going to panic, we're going to rely upon our own resources and we refuse the, the help and strength that He gives us and provides for us through the Spirit and through the Word or even through a fellow believer. We just are not going to trust God. But when we obey And I'm not one of these that say, thank you. Thank you that I slammed my hand in the door. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That's weird. don't, don't, Don't be a weirdo. There's enough weirdo Christians, all right? I'm not thankful for cancer. I'm not thankful for heart disease. I'm not thankful for any of that. But God, I'm thankful that you love me. And you've not abandoned me. That even in this, God... You're faithful to help me and walk with me and not leave me. Apostle Paul himself knew discouragement. I read this story a number of years in different ways. and It's a story of a rite of passage into adulthood for some Native American tribes. When a boy becomes a man within the tribe that the father takes him into the forest, blindfolds him, and leaves him alone overnight in the forest. To pass the test, the boy is required to sit on a stump or log all night and not remove the blindfold until the morning sun shines through it. He cannot cry out for help to anyone. If he survives the night, he's a man and is welcomed into the tribe. He cannot tell the other boys of this experience because each youngster must come into manhood on his own. Obviously, the boy is terrified. Being in the dark and blindfolded, his mind plays tricks on him. And as the wind blows the grass and the trees, he hears all kinds of noises. He thinks of wild animals must surely be all around him, but he must sit still no matter what and never remove the blindfold Because this is the only way that he will become a man in this tradition. Finally, after a fearful night, the sun appears and he can finally remove his blindfold. And when he removes his blindfold, 
he discovers that his father was sitting next to him the entire night. Without the boy knowing, his father has been there the entire night protecting him from anything that might cause him harm. I love old hymns. I don't think they ever get out of date. And while this isn't quite a hymn, it's certainly a favorite song. I will not sing it and what lose any anointing we've gathered here this morning. I will not ruin that by singing it, but when I speak the words, you'll know the song, I hope. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel so lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And then the chorus or the song, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches I think if Paul knew that song, he might have sung it there in the cell because he was reminded that God was watching over him. God was not oblivious to where he was, what he was going through, what he was facing. And he told Paul and he tells us to take courage, to take courage from me. This morning, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, do you need encouragement that only God can give you this morning? Encouragement that only God himself can satisfy? Let me ask you, have you asked him to give you his courage? Have you invited him inside your crisis? I don't mean invite him in and say, God, bail me out and I'm going to go back to doing what I want to do. But God... In the midst of this, teach me, show me, draw me close. Jesus gave us and gives us a great promise in Matthew 7, 7, when Jesus says, ask, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you.